This is Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast for writers and readers by writers and readers. Hello and welcome to Dissecting Dragons. I'm Madeleine Vaughan. And I'm Jules Ironside. This week, picture this, enhancing scenes with the right frame. So, um, this episode has been brewing in the back of my mind for quite some time, and Jules can attest to the fact that I said I'd like to do this at some point, but I need to think about it a little bit more <laughs> quite yes, a while ago. <laughs> she did. Unfortunately, she picked the night when I'm at my stupidest to say, hey, shall we do this? And I was like, <laughs> I need you to run that by me because I don't really understand. <laughs> um. Saturday night is not when you get intelligent jewels, I'm afraid. (laughs) Well, basically, um, this episode uh, was kind of brought by some of my thoughts regarding the depiction of Yaskia in season two of The Witcher. So that kind of gives you an idea of how long it's been ruminating in the back of my head. Yep. Um, and I should say that this is not an episode which is going to be focusing on Yaskia at all. It was just that there was some things, and we'll go into it a little bit later on, that kind of occurred to me as I was watching it that got me thinking about this subject. Um, and essentially the issue of framing actually lies at the heart of a fair amount of fan discourse, um, but it's also something that can really push a book or a film um, from being good to brilliant or from being bad to terrible. So um, it is quite important. So I thought, actually, I do want to talk about it. Yeah, definitely. Um, We've done an episode in the past on basically theme and tone, Mm -hmm. as in, are you saying what you think you're saying? This kind of feeds into that, but it is, I would say, a separate issue. So it's definitely worth delving into. Yeah, this is one of those things where it, it's there's a lot of crossover because the it's all kind of part and parcel, but it is kind of a slightly unique feature um, and one that's worth thinking about. So um, you might be at this point asking, okay, but what do you actually mean when you're talking about framing? So um, first, it's very important that this is not confused with a framing device or a framing narrative. That's not what we're talking about today. So a framing device and a framing narrative is a type of framing that involves a story within a story or a secondary story that surrounds the primary story. So um, to give you an example, Chaucer's Canterbury Tales use framing device. Uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein also does it because obviously you've got Captain uh, Walton, is it? I think so, yeah. Yeah, um, at the beginning, it's, you know, it's it's all being relayed to him. So that's a framing device. Uh, you also get it in, obviously, The Princess Bride as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, and obviously, 19th century novels are actually kind of like rife with this i'd say 19th century turn of the century as well because you've got f scott fitzgerald's the great gatsby where the story is kind of being narrated to you by someone who stands between you and the main players of the story so that is also a choice a framing device yeah um so a framing device or framing narrative is a type of general framing um but we're going to be looking at general framing so not those particular things so um A frame is basically a form of enhancement which adds flavour and tone to a scene without actually changing the narrative 
in any significant way. So stories can actually function without these enhancements, without these frames, but they will often end up feeling flat um, if you remove them or don't add them. If an aspect of a scene can be removed without significantly changing the scene, then it's usually a type of frame. If its removal alters the plot in any way, then it's not a frame. So that's the kind of general rule. If you can take it out and it doesn't actually make any difference to the story, but kind of makes the scene feel a bit flat, then it's probably a frame. If you can if you take it out and it actually does mean that there is a difference, even if it's only kind of a very a, a small one, then it probably isn't a frame. So, yeah, so I mean, very much like how you, you'll hear people being certainly antiques experts and things, but also mm -hmm. people who sort of art appraisers talking about literally picture frames, and it's yeah. the same thing as in the correct frame on a picture will lead your eye to the things that the artist most wanted you to see first. And yeah. so you'll follow the details around. The wrong frame on a picture means you don't look at that initial pathway. So this is very much the same thing in movies and books. Yeah. A picture will exist, exist without the frame. Yes. But the it's frame will, will make it better. Yeah. Um, okay. So <laughs> as Jules has said... Um, yeah, the, the frames will draw attention to, to features in the scene, highlighting aspects in order to really set up the scene. Now, this means that they can be used to create tension, to add foreshadowing, to suggest ideas through association, to set a mood, and so much more. So they're actually really, really important. Yeah, Hopefully now everyone's understanding what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let's actually look at how framing works. Um, so in movies, one of the most basic types of framing is music, lighting and camera work. Um, a really good way of kind of understanding how it works is if you've ever been on to YouTube and you've seen those films in a different genre sort of films where editors will take a well-known film and they'll recreate trailers so that the film appears to be in a t completely different genre. So one of the famous ones is Mary Poppins as a horror film, for example. Yeah, there's also that sort of... Um, it's a film, like a film clip challenge. I don't know if people have seen it, but... Um, I sort of did one as a bit of a lark, a bit mm -hmm. of a lark. That's me and craving 19th century literature at the moment. Okay, <laughs> as a bit of a lark. Um, and it was, it just gave you this like bog standard sort of zombie apocalypse type footage and sort of like what music would you put over it? And me being me and an utterly contrary sort of person wanted to add something that would completely juxtapose it. There is a 1976 song called All Kinds of Everything and it is the most saccharine stuff <laughs> you've ever, ever heard. And it's all, all very sweet and flutingly sung and the, the <laughs> lyrics are all sort of like, you know, All Kinds of Everything remind me of you and it's like um, silver bells and um, not cockle shells, but, you know, it's all really yeah. little twee things. <laughs> and I just like... That's it. That is what I would put over that. I would have that horrific zombies tearing people apart and the, everyone silently screaming and I would put that music over it because that's what I would do. <laughs> yeah. 
and it doesn't really change the tone but it, it almost makes it more horrific because it's like this person singing away about how wonderful life is yeah it, it, you're sort of touching on the uncanny there aren't you it's yeah. like taking you know children's rhymes and stuff like that which were once supposed to be jolly and now are so associated with very creepy things mm-hmm. um but essentially music and lighting and camera work will heavily inform how we interpret a scene in um in film uh so i'm gonna kind of create an example here for you so uh let's build a scene where you have two people who are talking at a party one of those people person a is not supposed to be there um and person b knows that but both of them are pretending that it's fine both neither of them are bringing it up both of them are pretending that they're unaware of it but both of them are kind of aware of the fact that the other one knows okay and throughout the scene they're talking they're being polite they're smiling and they shake hands now in one example we play some smooth jazz in the background you add warm twinkling lighting and you do lingering camera shots of their hands when they shake hands and immediately the scene has been framed with romantic undertones so suddenly this is their little secret it feels conspiratorial but in a very kind of warm fluffy way we immediately get the sense of oh there's a connection between these two people now if we take the exact same scene without altering any of the dialogue without altering any of the way that their sort of facial expressions go or anything like that and you instead play tense droning synths with like a high tight violin Um, in the background and then if you mute the colors so that they're a little bit more gray a little bit more sinister and with undertones of blue and instead of focusing on the hands you instead have intermittent shots of the characters faces one at a time so not shots of them together but rather going from side to side Um, then the scene is suddenly suspenseful and menacing these two even though they're smiling at one another are clearly enemies of some kind there's tension there despite their facades now the scene itself has not changed in any way at all but the frame has and the frame has informed the audience what they ought to be concentrating on and how they ought to be understanding and reading the scene yeah the frame is kind of a nudge towards the emotional content what the emotional response should be isn't it you could do the same scene and you could add i don't know you could have a sort of low-key warm light and you could have this sort of soft sweet slightly mournful piano in e minor and suddenly it's kind of like that's that's two people who were once together and have now parted ways meeting up yes you can frame (laughs) it in so many different ways yeah Um, you really really can um so framing can be done yeah as i said lots and lots of different ways um so let's actually look at some of them and how they work so some of the things that you can use to frame a scene um we're going to start off with a really obvious one which is location yeah so the location of a scene 
can really frame it. Different locations are synonymous with certain ideas, tones, and moods, and these can be used to enhance your scene. Uh, for example, if your narrative calls for your character to be shopping, placing them in a high-end clothing store compared to a cosy independent bookstore is really going to change the feel of what they're doing. The scene itself could be exactly the same, perhaps they bump into someone that they used to know, but we're going to get a really, really kind of different sense of the framing if they are in a shopping, a shopping mall or they're in a tiny little bookstore somewhere. Yeah. Um, location also frames the narrative uh, by applying context or drawing parallels to other things, including moments in history, well-loved media, or even other scenes from within your story. So you can create tension in a thriller by setting a scene in a location where a terrible tragedy or attack took place, for example. Um, and on the other side, you can insert romance by setting the story in or by simply drawing on the idea of Paris <laughs> because it's so synonymous with being a romantic location. So you could just say, right, well, we're going to kind of set it in a cafe which has that kind of, you know, Parisian cafe sort of feel. Or we're even just going to put a picture of the Eiffel Tower in the background. Little details like that really can help to frame the scene in quite subtle ways. Or sometimes not so subtle ways. Yeah, I remember um, Shauna Maguire saying something about when she's done a bit of, foray, of a foray into writing graphic novels. She obviously doesn't do the artwork. Yeah. But um, because I follow her on Patreon every so often, every once a month, we get to sort of ask her questions and she'll sort of pick one and answer them, which is pretty yeah. cool. Um, and someone asked her how she got into graphic novels and what exactly she needed to, to, to do for her artist. How did she get the art right kind of thing when she's just doing the writing and they're obviously not in the same room together? Yeah. And she said, well, you know, I would write out a script kind of like this. And then for panel one, I would say, um, for example, she wrote, uh, for the new Kitty Pride X-Men type novel. Mm -hmm. And she was saying, you know, we're starting off, we're setting the scene. It's a picture of Kitty Pride's college bedroom. There is a photo of, you know, someone that she'd been good friends with who had been lost, thanks to the X-Men, on her yeah. desk. And there's other things, little little details to show her interests. It wouldn't actually change the story if you took those things out. They're essentially just two-dimensional props in this yeah. little scene. Um but, you know, the setting sort of gives you the... I mean, she, you could have started it with her sort of walking uh, in her home bedroom, for example, or yeah. at the academy bedroom or whatever. Um, and each one gives you a little bit of something different without actually changing the plot. So, yeah, yeah. I thought that was quite interesting. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's it's with graphic novels and stuff like that. It's, you know, 101. You could say, right, well, this is the bedroom and you literally just put down the basic furniture and don't add anything. Yeah. Um, but then it, you can add a frame by saying, OK, well, we're going to add some stuffed toys there. We're going to, you know, put clothes on the floor to show she's a little bit messy, etc. That's all framing. Yeah. What I found interesting was that Shauna Maguire kind of went a little bit further and said, for those people who are actually big marvel fans who have read everything that's come before mm -hmm. putting in those little details details that show that i know the character of kitty pride really well mm -hmm. is, is sort of giving them this subconscious message that they can relax that this isn't somebody who's going to fuck with their universe yeah absolutely yeah 
Um, that's a really, really fantastic point. Again, it's important to remember that a frame will never affect the core plot. It can always be removed without technically changing the bones of the story in any way. So setting a scene in a prison would not be a frame if the plot involved the character being in prison, because they have to be there. However, choosing whether to set the scene in an overcrowded prison canteen during the day or in a cell in the middle of the night could be a form of framing. Um, if you were trying to create a sense of claustrophobic danger or hopeless loneliness or things like that. So once again, important to remember if it can, if it taking it out affects the plot, then it's not a frame. Yeah. So um, to give some examples uh, from real life, I've got two here. Um, the first one is the proposal scene. Um, which takes place in the Temple of Apollo in the 2005 Pride and Prejudice. So with Matthew McFadden and Kieran Knightley, um, this is the, the, the sort of the famous scene where it's pouring down with rain and Darcy makes his first proposal to Elizabeth um, and she shoots him down and they have this whole argument, you know, and it's raining and things like that. Now, setting the proposal in a storm where the two are forced to seek shelter under the arches um, and between the pillars of a rather romantic temple creates a sense of enclosure without the claustrophobia. Um, it also brings in these ideas of elegance versus the forces of nature. So they're amidst these, this beautifully elegant, this slightly decadent building. But then at the same time, the forces of nature are raging around them. Um, and so it introduces these, the, this sense of tension and release at the same time. Um, because of this, it could be argued that the scene is more sexually charged and tense than the BBC Pride and Prejudice version of the scene, uh, which obviously just takes place in uh, a room. Um, and it's a sunny day, I'm pretty sure Darcy just arrives. Um, and it's a lot, and it feels a lot more demure and in some ways kind of more, um, it has a very, very different tone just because of the setting, even though the content itself is relatively similar and the subject is relatively similar. See, I, this is where I would go off on one and I'm not going to do that because I don't want to derail anything. Mm -hmm. Um, it doesn't work for me personally, but I can see why it would work for a different audience than me. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's not about saying one is superior than the other. It's just about I mean, showing how... Me, but... <laughs> yeah, no, I, 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 I'm, not, I'm not trying to suggest... I, you know me as well. I, yeah. <laughs> I very much prefer the BBC version. Um, and I don't think that they needed that kind of... that sort of tension. But the, the fact of the matter is, is that they made a choice there um, and it had a certain effect and one which was clearly successful because a lot of people were very drawn to this scene um, and what is very interesting is if you compare it between the scene 
in the BBC version where whenever people talk about it, they just talk about Elizabeth just destroying Darcy. You know, the whole sort of, it, they just say, like, it's this massive power sort of move. The way she just cuts him down. Um, whenever they, they look at the 2005 version, they talk about this, the tension, the the fact that it's a, an almost kiss without ever sort of being a kiss and all of that. And it's, and the frame largely plays into that. Yeah. Um, another one in a book um, is obviously, and we've talked about the fact that um, classic books use a lot of framing. Um, the beginning and the end of Frankenstein, as well as being a framing device, um, is also sort of works in a frame in terms of its location because it's set obviously in the icy tundra in the Arctic. Now for modern readers, the location is going to bring to mind failed and horrific Arctic explorations like that of Lord Franklin, you know, which ended with the crew dying. It's also going to break us think about Scott. It's going to make us think about, you know, these confident sort of these these confident gentlemen who went out there and ended in cannibalism and and despair and all that jazz yeah. um um but it also hammers in the book's themes of human hubris man versus nature and the old world versus the new world so it works as a fantastic form of foreshadowing for the narrative which is about to come <laughs> yeah yeah definitely um I would suppose there's any number of adaptations, um, but the Brontes were always quite a good one to go to for sort of location sort of mm. tone because so many people have gone, I must make Jane Eyre, I must make Wuthering Heights, etc. Very few people go, I must make Villette, I must make Agnes Grey, which is quite annoying. But um, <laughs> actually, that's sort of... You get away from the houses. I mean, there was a choice in... Um, think a fairly recent ITV adaptation with Tom Hardy for mm-hmm. Wuthering Heights. I say fairly recent, it was probably about 12 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> That's how time moves for me now. Um, but they chose to have Heathcliff and Cathy sort of having a bit of a confrontation after Cathy had married um, Edgar Linton and Heathcliff's come back, um, which didn't feel out of place for the adaptation, even though it doesn't obviously happen in the book there's no way it could do because you're presented the entire story through um you know secondary sources yeah um but they could have had they chose to have that confrontation on the moor Mm. which is where kathy and heathcliff most belong more than any of the grand houses and things they talk about in that book they could have as easily had that confrontation in the garden of of, um larkry's larkry's larkacre which is um Edgar Linton's place, uh, because there is a moment where Nellie Dean sees Catherine slip in through basically the, the French doors. They're not called French doors, but through the yeah. French doors into the parlour, knowing that Heathcliff is still out in the trees in the orchard outside, and they've clearly been having an argument. So clearly, they have had some sort of confrontation, and they and, and it had taken place in the orchard rather than out on the moor or in the dilapidated ruin. Uh, ruined splendor of Wuthering Heights itself so there was a choice made there and they chose to have it very sort of raw out on the moors where you know these two people were left to feel at the end of the book these two terrible awful people are left roaming for eternity (laughs) yeah um and it just enforces so many things um the fact also that they're kind of when they're on the moor they're on even footing because they both belong there um so you remove all the kind of the power play 
that goes along with you know when she's lady of the house and etc you know um so that is a really really interesting one I think framing is also, in terms of location, it is also really important for things that are supposed to be more comedic. Yes. Because, I mean, when you want something to be comedic, depending on what sort of angle you're coming from, you choose the place that isn't going to overpower the scene, but at the same time is going to play into it in a way that, let's say two people are having an altercation and then one person drops a real clangor. You're going to yeah. choose a place that plays into that, that makes it come off as like the worst possible thing or the funniest possible thing because it's such a complete <laughs> juxtaposition. It's kind of yes. like a, a bloke standing in the middle of Disneyland saying, well, I told you I didn't want to have kids. And she's kind of like, um, look around you. <laughs> For example. Yeah. Absolutely. You don't want to have kids, but <laughs> let's, let's look at where you like to go to spend your time off. Yeah. Okay, all right. So the next is period. Now, using period as a frame is a little bit more complicated as there are aspects of period which will obviously feed into the bones of a story and are therefore an essential part of the foundation rather than a frame. However, there are cases where period has been chosen specifically to create a background that will frame the story without actually affecting it. This is done by tapping into the general mood, aesthetic, politics and social realities of the period and using the audience or reader's knowledge of these to set the tone. Now there is a fantastic example of this that always comes to mind. Um, and that is uh, a theatre production by Nihai. Um, I don't know if any any of our listeners are aware of sort of Nihai theatre. They're a, they're a brilliant theatre company, um, and they did an adaptation of the opera Don Giovanni, and their adaptation was called Don John. Now it follows a sexual deviant named John. Um, through his various sexual exploits and his increasing number of crimes in as he passes through this small town, basically destroying a whole number of people's lives. Um, now, the play is set during the Winter of Discontent, which was um, in England, uh, well, in the UK, between November 1978 to February 1979. Um, now, What's important to recognise that this is a frame is the fact that the politics play no part in the plot whatsoever. In fact, there's only one indication that it's set during this period and it's right at the beginning where you see a bunch of, uh, of workers or you see a bunch of people gathered around a bin fire trying to keep warm and there's a radio playing and it sets the tone for the fact that it's the winter of discontent. And that's yeah. the only reference to it that you get. Um, now, the play itself could have been set very easily in the modern day, but the atmosphere and aesthetic of the period created this fantastic sense of tension and added to the background sense of moodiness and, well, literal discontent throughout. Everyone was already going through a rough time. There was tension. Um, people were sort of faced with, with difficulties at every kind of corner and were desperately trying to carve out a moment of happiness for themselves. And that was really, really highlighted 
simply by the fact that it was set in this period, which had no effect on the plot at all, but really framed it. Yeah, definitely. Um, and it doesn't have to, with a period type framing, it doesn't necessarily have to be the whole period that you're focusing on. It can be certain uh, gestures, manners, morals, morals, etc. that are yeah. put into play during something. So I'm thinking of last Christmas I saw uh, and basically the Duchess of Malfi, and it was on one of the Sky Channels, and it had mm -hmm. Michelle uh, Doherty, I think, in it. Mm -hmm. uh, no, maybe it wasn't Michelle Doherty. Anyway, the Duchess of Malfi is by John Webster, and he was kind of a contemporary of Christopher Marlowe and Shakespeare, but he doesn't get talked about as much. But yeah. Duchess of Malfi is a well-known one about a woman who inherits a great fortune, um, and, you know, she's widowed. And she does not want to remarry. She wants to stay mistress of her own land and her money, etc. But that doesn't yep. mean she's not going to take a lover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, she's not... Her brother gets in the way and won't let her marry the man she does eventually decide she wants to marry. And then she finds mm. herself pregnant. Um, so what follows is this big sort of scandalous um, thing where she has to fake accuse her lover of uh, deceiving her, etc. It's really, really interesting to watch. What I found particularly interesting was the way that they took Webster's words and without, you know, twisting anything, but they took mm. what was in the text. They had the brother acting in a way where he was jealous of his sister sexually. So mm. there was a hint of almost incest there. And they showed that off quite well um, in the way he acted towards her. It was the whole sort of like you it would have been perfectly normal to kiss your brother or sister on the cheek or forehead um, in the time that this is set in it would have been normal to yeah. em embrace a male relative if you knew them well enough mm. um, even perhaps in front of servants or other people etc but it was one of those sort of it lingered a bit too long on his side so they used the gestures and the sort of like you know the formal kisses and and hugs and things of the time and made him sort of play into it a little bit more so that there was this element of you kind of want to bang your sister don't you dude <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's it's quite interesting because actually obviously the royal shakespeare company um play with period a lot when they're kind of um obviously putting on productions of shakespeare um one of the ones that's you know always very interesting is for example uh touching on on sort of the themes of colonialism in uh the tempest by putting certain clothes you know by with the costumes and things like that and again the content doesn't change in any shape or form uh the play is still the tempest you know othello is still othello um and yet they will kind of touch on certain themes and certain ideas by literally just how they dress the actors, um, which will bring to mind certain themes and things. So it really, really is very interesting. And theatre is especially good at doing it. Yeah, it's like the... Um, oh, God. I want to say As You Like It. It's not As You Like It at all. It's my other favourite Shakespeare play, which I now can't remember the title of. <laughs> how embarrassing. Um, much do about nothing. That's it. Yeah. Um, the Kenneth Branagh Emma Thompson one, which you know is is quite old now, but instead of setting it in Renaissance times, they set it in sort of eighteenth century Italy. 
Yes. <laughs> and even though, I mean, it fits so perfectly into the political upheavals that were going on between the, the Italian city-states at the time that you almost didn't notice that it wasn't set in the time it was written and it just fit. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, it's I just, I love the way that they do it sometimes. I think it's just fantastic. Shakespeare's very adaptable in that way, though. Very, very adaptable. <laughs> Okay, um, so next, um, oh sorry, no, yes, next, uh, we're going to talk about features. So one type of frame which is often used um, is actually looks and character description itself. Um, and you know, we, we touched on this as well in location in that you might have elements of the character sort of features or elements of, of you know their clothing and things like that which will sort of feed into it there as well um now sometimes this is subconsciously done um other times it's done on purpose and it can be used on all levels um, i mean it's used very often in parody um as well as sort of more subtly so a really good example of this is um if you have a skit, if you have a little comedy show, you can suggest a Karen character immediately by putting someone in a certain type of wig. And if the wig is bad, even better, people immediately see the bad wig and know exactly what you're going for. Yeah. Um, just because of the hairstyle. Um, immediately the character is framed in a certain way, so much so that the audience will likely be more inclined to interpret anything they do as Karen behaviour. So in some ways we're kind of almost tricking ourselves into over-analyzing what they do and immediately going typical Karen behaviour, where we might not have immediately jumped to that conclusion initially if we didn't have that frame. Um, in genres like romance, particularly with paranormal romance and things like that, uh, the bad boy character is almost always depicted with dark hair. Leather jacket. Yeah, the leather jacket. Um, so much so that he's easy to identify uh, just immediately. Um, in comparison, you have the frat boy character and he's almost always blonde. <laughs> yeah, blonde with a, a really sort of preppy collar on his shirt and his hair parted neatly to the side. Yeah, absolutely. So you have tropes like the mean blonde, uh, sort of the mean girl who's who's usually blonde. We can tell her because she's blonde. Then we have the, the tall, dark and mysterious character. We know they're mysterious because they're tall and dark haired. Um, we haven't even seen them being that mysterious. Um, and of course, Jules's favourite, uh, the flirty redhead. <laughs> yeah, you know, if I could, I wouldn't actually burn everybody who played into this trope but by god <laughs> it's like oh you're a redhead you must be really up for it then yeah. no <laughs> or, or you must be you know up for a fight constantly as well yes um these are so well recognized and known that they are typically lent on to frame a story um or in this case the characters well my new favorite actually is the librarian trope <laughs> it's like oh pencil skirt glasses Yes. Uh, veiled beauty and you know yeah, take off the glasses burn. and suddenly they're gorgeous let down their hair and i'm like mm, yeah uh -huh. <laughs> uh, now these characters would be no different technically if they had another hair color another eye color sort of 
you know, different things like that. Um, but the expectations for them to meet the criteria associated with hair colours and these kinds of features means that readers will interpret their behaviour through that frame. And it's actually kind of how a lot of some, a lot of writers actually get away with quite lazy writing in that essentially what they've done is they haven't created a character, they've just used a frame and kind of allowed everyone else to just fill in the blanks based on the expectations of that frame. And that will often lead to books that feel shallow um, and and characters that feel very hollowed out. Yep, definitely. Um, as we said, this can also be done with clothes and accessories, um, sometimes in a more subtle way. So fashion trends, which are associated with certain groups, can be used to signal that a character is part of that group or part of that minority without it actually ever being said. You know, in some cases, it's obviously very obvious. So, for example, if you put a character in uh, a veil, um, uh, an ubaya or, or a hijab, then you're basically you're framing them as... Muslim, um, but you might not actually ever say it, and it might not actually be part of the story. Uh, similarly, you might, you know, give them a lot of sort of LGBT pins or stuff like that. And again, you're, it, it's probably, it might not be part of the plot, but you're framing it in a certain way. Uh, this can be done for a number of reasons, um, and we'll discuss that in a moment. Um, but obviously character coding is linked to frames as frames are often used as part of coding alongside obviously character arcs and dialogue and other little bits and bobs. Yes. Um, everything else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not actually going to be possible for us to list every single thing which can be used to frame a scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Needless to say, it can be almost anything. Uh, this includes objects, animals, colours and more. Uh, here, a lot of people will lean heavily on symbolism. Uh, now, once again, got to remind you that if one of the, of the things um, affects the plot in any way or even features more than passingly in the dialogue it's not a frame but a feature of the scene so for example if you said right well i'm going to use this cafe as a frame then you might have them in the dialogue saying uh, oh this is a cute cafe or i'll meet you at the cafe um that's not really a massive kind of thing it could be very easily changed to i'll see i'll meet you at the art gallery or this is a nice art gallery um however if it's a whole sort of they have a whole conversation about the fact that they don't actually like coffee or, or stuff like that then the setting starts to become part of the scene itself rather than just framing it yeah. um and that so that is no longer a frame it's the same if you have an object or stuff you know things like that so uh the Sh uh shauna mcguire um, it was Shauna Maguire, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, the Shauna Maguire, the things that are on the desk. If she starts to interact, you know, on a very large scale with the things on the desk, other than perhaps, you know, if she picks it up and starts thinking about it or ruminating about it or, you know, then it's probably not a frame. Whereas if it's just there and maybe she picks it up or she's fiddling with it or something like that, but it doesn't actually affect the scene, then it is. Yep. Okay, so hopefully now um, you will have a really good idea of what a frame is and how it can be used. So let's get into the nitty gritty. Um, why does framing actually matter? Yes, why does framing matter? 
Um, so, <laughs> as well as obviously enhancing a story and giving it dimensions and texture, framing is also a fantastic tool in political and social writing. Now, Jane Austen used a lot of framing in her stories to raise issues which she couldn't openly write about for legal reasons. We've obviously touched on this in past episodes. The framing in her books was subtle enough to be disguised beneath a romance novel narrative, but was present enough to provoke thought without ever saying anything directly. So through framing, Austen was able to talk about slavery, the privatisation of land, classism, and so much more. Her writing is thus deeply political, but in a way that kept her safe. Yeah, and it was something, this wasn't a minor sort of like, yeah, you might get a rap on the knuckles. This was kind of like, okay, you've disagreed with the church openly about something, or you disagreed with the government openly about something, we are literally going to lock you up for the rest of your life without trial. I don't yeah. think we can like emphasise that enough. Um, yeah. But a really excellent example is always Mansfield Park, which, you know, mm. as Madeline said, that entire book is a conversation about slavery, but it seems to be a book. Well, you know, it's about human exploitation, but slavery. Yeah. Um, but it seems to be a book about the poor cousin finally getting the guy by being a decent person. Um, yeah. yeah, there is an element of that. But you look at Fanny Price and it's kind of some of the interactions she has with her uncle. There's a definite hint of her uncle not being a great guy, that actually he might be a sexual predator. Yeah. Um, we can't go into all of that now. But yeah, all, all of that is in there through framing. Yes. Um and so uh, it's, it's also why a lot of people can sort of actually get a lot out of it because the framing, you know, a lot of the framing also re relied on the context of the period, which is why sometimes in the modern day, unless you kind of have or understand that context, you might miss some of it. Um, and it can also actually be why you can look at a book now and suddenly go, hold on a second, there's a whole homoerotic subtext here, which might not have necessarily been intentional. Uh, but we'll get into that in a minute. Okay, uh, quick question. Mm -hmm. The Chronicles of Narnia. When I read them, I read them, okay, admittedly, I read them as sort of when I was like seven, eight, nine. And yeah. I read them as straight fantasy and loved yeah. them. And then when I was about 12, I think... Someone went, oh yeah, of course, Aslan is just a metaphor for Jesus. And I felt so cheated. Yes. <laughs> um, because it wasn't obvious, but I'm like, it is kind of a framing type thing. I mean, it's more than that, because there's a lot of um, substitution going on quite deliberately. Yeah. But there are certain things in there that are actually framing and some of it's not great either when you really look at it yeah i agree so framing has been used in, co in combination with a whole bunch of other techniques to yeah get that to get certain ideas across i completely agree <laughs> into malleable young minds who would have gone yeah i'm not reading the bible but it's like oh chronicles of narnia portal fantasy <laughs> yeah you know what we're really saying right <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, I've been tricked into reading Christian content. Um, yes. But the nice thing is you can actually just read it as a portal fantasy. You can just sort yeah. of ignore all the framing and uh, and just sort of take it for granted. Um, but yeah, um, 
yeah anyway so um, framing also allows writers to explore multiple subjects without making their writing preachy or overburdening it um, you know with the correct frames writers can acknowledge issues nod towards them provoke thought or use them to build up a larger narrative without having to spend a large amount of time breaking them down Stories which use frames in this way to discuss issues are often heralded as being thoughtful and engaging and are also texts which tend to kind of live on for a long period because they have so many dimensions. So, um, yes, classic literature, uh, you know, has uh, has survive for a number of different reasons some of it elitist but when we look at kind of some of the classics um, there are certain books which stand out above others and a lot of I think part of that is because of the use of framing within those books which has kind of given it so much dimension that there is still lots to explore. Yeah definitely um, I certainly think that's why Jane Austen's work because you know it's like 200 years stand between us and her books yeah and they didn't even go out to the audience they were intended to go out at the time they were delayed by sort of 15 20 years so yeah i think that's a, a pretty good example i mean if you compare her to people who are writing at the same time yeah there's yeah. there's um anne radcliffe obviously um and there's a few others but how many people you say jane austen even people who don't like jane austen go oh yeah we know who that is yeah. Very few people who don't read in that sort of arena know who Mrs. Radcliffe is or, you know, Daniel Defoe or <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Um so it, <laughs> it is worth considering that. Why are the classics the classics? Um framing does play a part in it. Um Atmosphere, mood, tone, um, are also they also often rely on framing. Um, every scene will have a frame of some kind, regardless. Uh, what's important to remember is that while some scenes will need a big golden frame to match the grandeur of the event of the scene, others will just need something plain and simple which doesn't distract. So there will be a frame in every scene that you write, but some of those frames will just literally be there to support quietly what's happening there others will be there very intentionally in order to build up the scene itself yeah it's like uh, if you're you're framing the madonna of the rocks by leonardo da vinci you're going to use something completely different to if you were going to frame a jackson pollock yes <laughs> exactly back to art metaphors <laughs> the other metaphor you can use is think of it like spice okay if you if you've got a if you've got a certain sort of a simple kind of oh I'm just going to make a really a, a, like a a bowl of cereal if you're yeah. going to have a bowl of cereal you wouldn't suddenly go right time to get out the nutmeg and the chili powder and uh, the chili powder and the paprika I'm really going to go to town on this you wouldn't have that because actually you just at this point in time you just kind of want a bowl of cereal nice and simple or just you know a slice of toast or something like that like however add if a it's pinch a pinch of cinnamon yeah you might yeah absolutely you know absolutely you might do that but you know we're not talking about recipes necessarily but if you just want a simple bowl of cereal yeah. then you're gonna have a simple bowl of cereal whereas if you're going right well okay now we're on to the main course you might want to start using some spices yes 
So now we get to the issue of framing going wrong. Yes, because <laughs> any literary device can go wrong. And when it goes wrong, it tends to go really quite horribly wrong. Yes. So um, while frames do tend to be quite consistent, uh, sometimes the association on which frames rely can change. Now, this can result in the frame altering the tone of a scene in an unwanted or unexpected way. Now, part of this can, you know, is also why um, we might look at historical novels and suddenly go, hold on a second, the context for this has completely changed. Yeah. Um, because of, you know, because uh, sometimes it can be a simple <laughs> simple thing of suddenly, you know, there's like a, oh, we, we, they, they ran about with gay abandon and suddenly we're like, nah, the word gay has a different context now. So suddenly we, we have a, you know, but you know what I mean? It could be simple so little things like that. Oh, yeah, or it the, can just be... The word queer, the number of Enid Blyton books where I feel quite queer. And you're like, <laughs> yes. if you read that literally straight now, it's kind of like... <laughs> Do you, Fanny? Do you really feel quite <laughs> queer? It's also, you know, the um, the number of times Sherlock Holmes ejaculates. Um, you know, suddenly, <laughs> you know <laughs> things change. Okay. Um. Anyway, <laughs> Mr. Rochester, he ejaculated violently in the garden. <laughs> yeah. Suddenly, the whole context changes. Um. <laughs> now, a really good example of this is in the film, the animated film Lilo and Stitch. I don't know if you ever watched that, Jules. I've never watched it. It's one of the ones that sort of passed me by. It's so good. I really, really recommend it. It's very, very good. Um, now, in the original, the characters uh, originally hijacked a Boeing 747 in order to give chase and rescue Lilo uh, from Captain Gantu. And so they they hijacked this Boeing 747. They they like literally stole it and they had to fly through the streets of the town. You know, they'd be dodging buildings, people in pursuit of this kind of this um, this spaceship. Now, uh, the framing of this would have originally been very exciting for a child audience. You know, it's a chase sequence. We all love a good chase sequence, except it's not even just a normal chase sequence. This time they're in a plane. There's the comedy of, oh God, how do I fly a plane? You know, the errors. There's all sorts of the framing of that being very exciting and having a great sense of tension and fun for a child audience, right? Yeah. Except the events of 9-11 occurred. Yeah, I mean, there was that time period when the Boeing 747s kept blowing up as well between Britain and Ireland, so, so that yes. wasn't great. Exactly. <laughs> um, so suddenly the context of a plane being hijacked and flown around through a city was, was suddenly going to have a very different association. Um, so the plane was changed into a spaceship, and the chase sequence was moved from the from the town to the mountains. Yeah. Um, a frame is also going to have different associations for different people. And this is where things start to get a little bit messy. It is impossible to cater to everyone's personal experience and associations. Uh, for one person, they might go, I'm going to add a dog here because that'll make the audience kind of go, aww. That's cute. There's a dog. But there's going to be someone out there who's watching it who has a terrible fear of dogs and suddenly goes, oh, God, this this 
has just now added the ho- a whole level of tension to the scene, which, you know, I didn't like. Yeah. Um, similarly, you could have, oh, well, I'm going to make this disgusting by, you know, adding some bugs or something like that. And there'll be one person out there who goes, oh, cool, bugs. Um, so you can't cater to everybody. But when you are framing something, you should consider your audience and the groups that might exist within it. Yes. Um, now, it's these differing associations which will often play a part in fan interpretation, particularly when it comes to characters who uh, people are interpreting as being framed as disabled or queer, um, etc. Uh, now, sometimes the framing of a character as as being part of a minority is unconscious um, and it comes down to sort of personal interpretations. Other times it's done as a form of foreshadowing for a later reveal um, or to just kind of normalise this sort of minority. Um, you, rather than sensationalising it, look at us, we've got a, um, you know, a, a Muslim character or a gay character, etc. And occasionally it's done intentionally to hook in certain viewers um, and then sort of never delivered upon. So let's look at a few examples of each case. Yes. Uh, We'll start with intentional framing. Um, So I'm going to just use queer framing just kind of as an example right now but obviously this it kind of goes across um in all sorts of different ways so um intentional queer framing is so prevalent as a phenomena that it actually has its own name uh queer baiting yeah um here the creators apply queer coded frames uh they queer code the characters um, using frames, usually along with jokes and suggestive language within the narrative. So it's not just about framing, they'll do other things as well. Um, And they do all this to imply that the character may be queer without ever confirming it and without it ever actually being a part of the plot. So it could be removed and nothing would technically change. So that's why we say it's a frame. Uh, now, two of the most obvious examples of this are BBC Sherlock and Supernatural. Now, there might be some people who go, hold on a second, it was confirmed in Supernatural at the end. But again, mm, it wasn't you know, delivered upon, was it? Yeah, it was sort of like... This is a romantic ha- friendship. Yeah, it could have very easily been, yeah, I love you. But, you know, Sam and Dean say I love you as well it could have been in a brotherly way it could have been in a friend way etc you know um it's not like they shared a kiss or anything like that there was never 100 percent confirmation of it so i'm gonna still say that this it wasn't actually delivered upon properly um the framing was done so specifically um that it was invisible or could be easily written off as a joke by some fans who would not have been who would not have liked it whilst also being very real and evocative for others and this was literally why you would have people who turned around and said no i 100 percent actually believe that john and sherlock are in love with each other or i 100 percent believe that dean and castiel are actually endgame because we're getting all of the hints 
that are moving towards that Um, and that would be entirely through framing whereas on the other side you could have people who would genuinely say what the hell are you talking about i don't see any of this there's nothing within the narrative that actually confirms this because the frames were actually only largely visible to certain people because it was within their sort of their experience yeah definitely um i think with bbc sherlock it might have been more unintentional than intentional because steve moffat is dreadful at actually putting straight characters on the screen i know he thinks he's good at it but he's actually not to the point where i think he might have a few things that maybe he needs to confront there just my personal opinion i i think it might have started off that way um but towards the end i think they really played into it i mean they made this whole trailer where they literally the way they edited it made it look like sherlock was saying i love you people people on the marketing team were hip to the game as it were and it's like well how can we get the views we'll 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 kneel on this we'll lean into it yeah and that's that's quite cynical um, is, yeah. I feel like they absolutely, for at least the last four seasons of Supernatural, <laughs> were kind of like, yeah, we're going to play this because it's bringing yeah. us viewers, ergo, we're getting money. Yeah, and, and and it couldn't be that, oh, we weren't conscious of it either because they kept joking about it within the narrative itself, Yeah, you know. Um, there have been times when the framing has potentially been done because the creator's didn't think they could actually get away with having queer characters or having minority characters. So they would kind of frame it so that they could have them in there whilst knowing that actually, uh, you know, the sponsors or whatever would never actually allow them to confirm it. Yeah. Um, A really good example of this uh, is BBC Merlin. And I say it's a good example of this. We don't actually have confirmation of this. So um, this is, you know, supposed. Uh, Now, it included a lot of queer framing between Arthur and Merlin in the early seasons. Um, And then it kind of lessened it up a little bit. Uh, But the final episode was so rampant with queer framing that I was actually watching it and I genuinely had a moment where I thought, oh my God, they're actually going to have a love confession here. Um, Because you had Arthur literally say, I'm going to say something to you, which, you know, uh, you know, they had this whole build up. The framing was so intense in that way that even I, who who had sort of been, you know, I, I consider myself quite an analytical sort of viewer, um, I genuinely thought, oh my god, we're actually building up to it, up to this. Um, and they didn't deliver it. Um, but there were interviews and statements, you know, like commentaries on the episodes by people who were involved in the show, including some of the writers, that were suggesting that this was actually intentional. That, you know, they couldn't actually have that final line, but they built the whole thing up because that's how it was supposed to be understood. Yeah and read i sometimes wonder as well i can't comment on bbc merlin because i never really jived with it for some reason that's fair enough (laughs) (laughs) but um i do think sometimes you've got particularly more in sort of more recent history in the last 10 years or so i think Mm. sometimes you've got people working across purposes as in someone's vision is this is how this plays out but they know they can't get that past the sponsor they know they, they can't get that past um the people actually making it so yeah. it's almost like you end up with this small cabal of people who are in the know within the creative team. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Including some um, of the actors, I think. 
Yes, yeah, definitely. You you also got it. Um, uh, there was in Teen Wolf, one of the writers was purposefully framing Styles Stilinski as being bisexual. Yeah, but he wasn't allowed to make it canon. And I think he actually ended up going, well, screw this, and he left the team. But the fact of the matter is, is that there's a whole frame, you know, uh, he's framed as being bisexual because the writer was writing him as bisexual, yeah. <laughs> but wasn't allowed to make it canon. Yeah. So, um, so yes, yeah, sometimes it is done intentionally and sometimes it's not because it's being done maliciously. Um. Another one is framing in order to foreshadow or to normalise. Um, now, using framing of any kind to foreshadow is absolutely one of my favourite literary techniques. It's such a fantastic and subtle way to build things up or to introduce subjects casually without making a big song and dance of it when it isn't relevant. Um, so when it comes to confirming minority identities, um, this technique is particularly rewarding, I think, both because once again it can normalise it or it can help build up to a great reveal. Yeah. Uh, some examples of this um, was the relationship between Katra and She-Ra in the recent She-Ra series. Um, did you ever finish it? No, I've never got around to finishing it. Okay, I think well, I'm sorry. Like, no, no, no. It's, <laughs> I, it, I'd already been spoilified by that, so and it, yeah. it kind of thought it was going in that direction from the beginning. Um, I don't really have an opinion on this one either way. It doesn't, it doesn't mess with beloved childhood canon because I wasn't invested in Shira herself anyway. Yeah, um, and I thought the new version of it was quite cool. Although there was some, there was some stuff in there that I was kind of like, can you please just tell me a story and stop preaching. Not the Shira capture stuff, but some of the other stuff. Yeah, um, but what's sort of what worked for me is it worked particularly well because of the friends to enemies to lover narrative. Because obviously they only really get together right at the end. Yeah. Um, now Catra and Shira are at odds with one another and going through obviously very tumultuous moments throughout the series. Um, the subtlety of the framing, therefore, suggested those quiet, lingering feelings beneath all the tension, which made the reveal at the end both believable and very satisfying. Um, so it, it it was used as foreshadowing for the relationship. It wasn't used as foreshadowing of, haha, look what we're going to do. It actually made sense in, in terms of actually building up their relationship. It would have worked exactly the same. It would have been just as successful if it had been... Uh, a male character and a female character um or whatever yeah um on the other side uh you've got a character like norma in dead end paranormal park um norma's obviously framed as autistic from the beginning um but this is only actually directly confirmed later on uh, and we see this in, in lots of kind of there are some obvious some obvious ones where she has certain symptoms like uh, her hyperfixation on Pauline Phoenix, as well as her some of her social anxiety, but also there are some subtle little cues as well. Like in a lot of the scenes where where she's talking with some of the other characters, you'll notice that she actually uh, is more likely to break eye contact to look around a lot more um, than they are. So you'll have these scenes where they're talking and one character is just continually looking at her, and she's sort of 
sort of looking all over the place as, as she's kind of talking as well. Yeah. So And it's very, very subtle. It's not done in a massively obvious way. It's quite a subtle thing. Um, but it all works in order to sort of frame her character. Um, and this normalises it wonderfully. Um, it doesn't try to make a feature of her autism. Um, it just concentrates on her as a character um, as a whole. Compare that with Sheldon from um, The Big Bang Theory. Yeah. Where, um, yes, it is funny. And yes, I think all of us at some point can go, oh, we know a guy a bit like that. And people have kind of gone, yes, this is funny without necessarily thinking, have we ever considered why he might be like that? And it's the whole sort of the absolute fixed, flat, emotionless expression all the time. Um, mm. When that's actually quite an unusual thing and it isn't actually an indication of autism yeah. at all. Um, it can actually be an indication of someone who is on the autism spectrum, who has specific anxiety at a specific moment. Yeah. But, I mean, compare and contrast, I'm continually being told that I don't emote properly and I don't really have much of an expression and I'm absolutely not on the autism spectrum. <laughs> it's just that I don't <laughs> emote very well, apparently. So, um, so, yeah, I think you're right. You can absolutely do it in a way that normalises it and makes it... Um, you know, something that's subtle but doesn't make that the entirety of someone's character. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we then get on to unconscious framing. So this is something that almost everybody does. As writers, we will create backdrops, we will add features, and we will create scenes which are based on our own experience. No decision we ever make is truly random because we're always prompted by, you know, something within our subconscious, our own experiences and our own preferences. Now, I'm just going to put an aside here. Um, this obviously excludes people who are using a generator to fill in blanks on setting, etc. So, uh, I, you know, they could say, well, I just chose the car colour. I just sort of looked outside and picked, you know, you're generating it then if yeah. that makes sense. Um, so you're not actually making a decision. Um, you're letting a machine or, 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 some, or something else do it for you. So we're excluding that. Um, most people also will have a natural sense of storytelling. Um, and so we'll unconsciously include a frame which will match and enhance the scene. Uh, which is why years later you might have people pointing out things that you didn't even notice because you were clearly unconsciously drawn towards it you know they go oh this was a really clever use of you know of you know i love that you included this here because it made me think of this um now that could just be entirely coincidental or it could be actually because subconsciously you were drawn to that for a reason yeah the other side of unconscious framing is accidentally creating a frame without <laughs> meaning to <laughs> steve moffat we're looking at you <laughs> yeah now, this is usually because it's beyond the scope of your experience and you are unaware that you are referencing or alluding to certain things um, with the creative decisions you've made. Obviously, there are other reasons as well, but we're going to focus on this one. Um, unconscious framing can occur if you've not done enough research into the area that you're writing about or you haven't considered it from your potential audience's point of view. 
Um, it can also happen if there happens to be a lot of crossover in the tools you're utilizing for a different frame. So you could be saying, actually, I was trying to build a different frame entirely, but the things you were using to build that frame are, could, are very easily sort of convertible over to another frame. So that can happen as well. I'm sorry, I'm, just, I'm sitting here ch chuckling. So I've just, yeah, okay, please carry on. <laughs> yeah. So a really great example of this is Earring Magic Kendall. <laughs> um, I know I sent this, there's a, a big post and there's been various memes on it. And I know I sent it to my cousin because I thought it was hilarious. I, yeah. Did I send it to you and the others? Was it was I that me? I know it, we started a big discussion about it, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, okay, so the uh, Earring Magic Kendall was created in 1993. Now, what happened was that the creators were trying to update Ken's look and make him look a bit cooler. Essentially, they'd done a, a survey with a lot of young kids and, you know, they said, do you actually like Ken? Uh, do you want to discontinue him and you know do you want someone else and they said no we like Ken but we kind of want him to be a bit cooler so researchers from the company went out to look at what kind of fashions young cool men were wearing um, and they went to all sorts of places which were considered you know cool places to be and they brought them back to the design room and the result was a Ken who was literally the perfect 90s gay stereotype uh, with pink and lilac clothes and pastel clothes, earrings, and even a cock ring around a chain, <laughs> which they just thought was a nifty necklace. Now, what happened was that this was so far beyond the experience of the creators that they failed to notice that they'd essentially framed Ken as gay until after production, when huge droves of gay men began to buy the doll. Um, and and it's, it's at that point that it became, you know, subject of public scrutiny. Um, and it was at this point that suddenly the kind of the, the creators were told, yeah, that little sort of chrome ring that you put around, you know, on his little necklace is actually symbolic of a cock ring. Um, so the doll was discontinued. But it is actually, I think, the best, still the best selling Ken doll in the history. See, it just... It, it's the whole thing is so beautifully sort of tonally deaf yeah. that I just I love it as an example but I what I have to say that I love most about the whole thing is that you know Ken had always had sort of so-so sales as in everyone was kind of like well Barbie's got to have a boyfriend etc and yeah. it wasn't until Ken sort of came out to Barbie and became her gay best friend that the sales <laughs> went through the roof and they went through the roof enough that that's what started the internal inquiry. I said, oh my God, we've made a really successful Kendall. How do we do it? Uh, you kind of made him gay, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and I just think that is so fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Um, to the extent now that also, I mean, because I think a lot of people always said, okay, he's always a little bit coded as gay, but you could say some of that, some of that framework was the fact that they're kind of framing it for him to be the perfect companion to Barbie. Yeah. You know, so he is being sold. Their main audience at the time, they were saying, this is, we're creating this character for young girls. 
So we've kind of got to make him appealing to them. Yeah, we can't so, make him a WWF wrestler, for example. Ex- exactly, exactly. So, you know, the, they had to apply a frame with that in mind, considering this has to be accessible for for, for young girls, which meant that actually uh, that, that same frame, which made him accessible to young girls, meant that sort of other people were looking at and going, well, he's actually framed as being a tiny bit gay. But then they went full on 100%. No, no, we've we've just 100% framed him as, as a stereotypical gay man. Um, and yeah. Um, and this has meant that actually ever since then, even though they obviously changed it, people then think Ken in himself has is sort of by association his own frame if that makes sense yeah just the name as well you know it it, it started to you know create these associations and it I mean I have to say back in the early 90s the late 80s early 90s um uh unless you were part from a fishing family mm. um where you did actually have an ear pierced to show that you were part of a fishing family um, if you were a man and you had an ear, an ear, a specific ear piercing, it was a subtle signal to say you can approach me if you're gay because I am also likewise gay, kind of thing. Because it wasn't safe to approach each other openly in case you accidentally got a, a straight man and he kicked the shit out of you. That yeah. was still happening when I went to Weymouth College in 1995. Yeah. Um, and when my friend came out as gay a couple of years after that, we knew he was gay all the way through college, but he finally came out two years afterwards just as we were heading off to university um Mm. in the summer he and i and a female friend of ours we used to go out all together and he would send me and my friend to chat up blokes to just sort of scope them out because there was still a a chance that one of them would turn around in this ex-naval base town and take a swing at him so it was safer to send in the girls yeah absolutely yeah Um, Now, this kind of sort of, and I'm only going to talk about it very briefly, um, this sort of comes into how I feel Yaskia was written in in season two of The Witcher, is that there there has been a lot of framing which has been applied to him um, as a bisexual character. And and this is sort of tied in with other other coding elements. Um, But... For me, that has actually started to cause a little kind of a little bit of a problem because I'm I it it's almost for me sort of leaning into baiting. Um, but I I'm not sure whether actually some of this framework is again just meant to be a we can't actually deliver this because of we have to stay accurate to the source material or we can't actually deliver this because you know they won't allow us to. Um, but we want to, you know, but there are some creative decisions within certain groups. You know, I certainly think that Joey Beatty himself is quite open to the idea and sort of leans into the idea of Yaskia being queer. Yeah. Um, you know, he's actually even gone as far as to avoid using gendered language when he's talking about Yaskia's sort of exploits or things like that. Um, and, you know, uh, and I, I think that it might very well be a case of there are some people who are saying, yeah, let's kind of put this in as a subtle thing. Um, but it's not kind of going to be delivered upon. But the response to that has been that we've seen a lot of people starting to get frustrated um, because we're now at a stage where actually do we, you know, 
do we need to kind of just leave things subtly in the background when it comes to minority characters you know um because there has been so much queer baiting and stuff like that rather than it just being an enhancement or a quiet suggestion which can be enjoyed it starts to feel like having the mick taken out of you yeah see um he's always i mean to be honest in the source material he read is pretty sort of bisexual yeah to be honest there's (laughs) and what's always funny is that obviously like uh, the witcher feels like a big D romp in a lot of ways yeah. you know you've got the bard character you've got you know etc and what's kind of funny is that like the whole thing with bard characters and D is that it's just genuinely accepted that they're, <laughs> that they're just up for it that they're just sort of little uh you know <laughs> yeah. little sexual deviants and they'll they really don't mind who it is um, that's kind of like the stereotype. So I feel like that plays into it a lot as well. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I think the thing with Yaskia is just just from my personal perspective is that, yes, I think it it is sort of coded in there and some of that coding hasn't actually been necessarily very subtle. I think there's yeah. probably a bit of disagreement behind scenes. I think if you went, yeah, okay, Yaskia is bisexual, he's having an affair with a man now. Yeah. You'd be fine. Your your audience would not go, would not get particularly angry, except you know a few edge cases in the from the sort of gamer end of things. But otherwise, yeah. they'd be fine. I think if you had Yaskia getting together with Geralt in any way, that would cause yeah. a problem, and because Geralt has not been coded like that. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, I and also I just think as well that at that point you are really kind of starting to mess with the larger plot you know of the books and things like that and obviously they have taken some liberties but they're still heading in the same direction um i do kind of feel like it would be nice to just see yaskia maybe you know actually also being with some guys as well as as girls um also because they've already kind of made the suggestion that Geralt sort of broke his heart so even if there was a tiny bit of you know actually a little bit of unrequited love there you know particularly when he was younger or stuff like that um you could still have it that they're just a you know fantastic friendship without it ever having to be that they're in a relationship because I kind of agree I can I completely understand the whole sort of okay in fan stuff pairing them together totally fine I don't think it makes sense in terms of the series um but I do feel like if you're going to code his character if you're going to frame his character as being bisexual which they for me personally I feel that they really have yeah um why not deliver on it you know yeah yeah definitely so um, I, I get that the argument about not alienating the main bulk of your audience, and but yeah. I don't think you would alienate them unless you messed with the story, as you said, unless you messed with sort of and they sort of like Geralt suddenly randomly comes out kind of thing. Yeah, <laughs> because that um, has not been foreshadowed. So. No, and and also you know the other thing is that Yask is a side character. You yeah. know, the main story is about it, having Yaskia, having a quick scene where you just see Yaskia sort of having to hide, you know, sort of jump out of bed with another guy as he's sort of scaling down a window or something like that wouldn't really make any difference to the larger plot. It would just still be him. Well, it's you know? like certainly in the last season, we saw him towards the end, he was drinking very heavily. And it's like you could have dealt with that with having him sort of mix it up with lots of different people sort of 
You can see Yaskia getting into one of those huge baths that seem to be dotted around every little village in Hamlet. Yeah. With, a, with a, you know, perhaps a guy and a girl and someone else. Yeah, I can see him doing that so that he doesn't have to think about some of the stuff that he's had to do. Yeah. More and than also, just getting drunk all the time. Yeah, and and like, and all, this is the other thing is that they've kind of obviously they've they've done this whole um, they've framed him as also actually clearly going through massive trauma as well and that's not and they've only framed it and um the problem with that kind of framing is that with a character who is that beloved um if we don't actually get some kind of if you only use framing in that way then you're kind of being told that okay but it doesn't really matter and actually if you're going to say okay with one of the characters one of the most beloved characters in the series is currently um you know going through massive trauma we want some acknowledgement of that yeah um in some form or another uh also you could just very easily just you know it would be really easy to just you know say he's off having a threesome um, you know, just to say, uh, well, I, it's like, a, am I going to, uh, you know, Geralt saying, are we going to be chased out of town? He's like, no, no, both participants were very happy with it. You know, just enhancing their marriage. Yeah. Or, or, uh, or, yeah. or even you could have had um, something along the lines of where's Yaskia? Oh, well, you know how he is. It's like, OK, who's he with this time? Um, it's like, don't worry, Geralt, you're not going to get chased by an angry husband this time. Yes. But what about the angry wife kind of thing? And it plays into <laughs> yeah. the humour of the show, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Um, you know, so I feel like it could be done. And I guess we'll see where it goes from here. Um, I certainly think that there are people who within the team who are kind of willing to go with it. Um, or at the very least, willing to basically say yes, agree that okay, we're never actually, it's never actually going to be done. But the people who are kind of reading into it aren't going crazy you know yeah. it's not oh it's just in your imagination which is one of the most patronizing things that creators can say is no that's entirely in your imagination um because uh, yeah it, it's just it's a little bit patronizing yeah um okay so how can you actually use framing to enhance your own work so as previously said, framing tends to be a rather instinctual thing to most storytellers, but being conscious of it can actually really help you enhance and shape your work. Um, particularly if you take the time to research how other writers and creators have used and created frames. Um, take time to consider how and why people might interpret characters, scenes and whole stories differently to you. Um, and note the frames which have contributed to these different ideas. So even if you don't agree with the interpretations, um, understanding where they come from can really help you in your own work. Yeah. So I'm going to give an example of this. Um, there is a pairing in a series that I like that I just fundamentally disagree with. Um, because I I have a pairing that I really like between these two between two characters, um, you know what I'm just gonna say it. Uh, a Court of Thorns and Roses. Um, I thoroughly believe Elaine and Lucian are end game. Yeah, I think but they should be, and I think that they should be as well. But there are a lot of people who vehemently believe that uh, Elaine and Asriel should be end game. Now, I can turn around and say, I don't understand this at all. 
yes, there's even been a scene where they've kissed and stuff like that. Um, but I don't understand how anyone can think they would be endgame. Now, this is because of my interpretation, but I can actually turn around and say, okay, emotionally I don't understand it, but I can recognise the frames which have been put in place which have allowed people to kind of go, to sort of follow this course of logic. Um, where it's not just personal preference, it's no, clearly, you know, we've been led in this direction so much so that they 100% believe it. It's not about wanting it. It's about saying, no, the story has pushed us in this direction. I can understand how they've interpreted things or how all the frames that they've kind of allowed, that have been put in place, which have allowed them to kind of follow that conclusion. I just don't necessarily agree with them. Um, but being conscious of it helps me understand, okay, well, how can I do similar things in my own writing? Yeah. I mean, I think you're being very generous to Mass there because I feel that the sudden Asriel is her mate reveal was quite contrived. But that might just be by the end of the third book. I was really, really pissed off with her. So I was Sorry, to Asriel it. is her mate? Asriel is Elaine's mate. But she, he, he isn't. Uh, who am I thinking of? Oh, yeah. You were thinking of Cassian. Cassian, yeah, sorry. And Nesta. Yeah, actually, I find that quite <laughs> contrived as well. But yeah, I do actually find the, the whole sort of Asriel being interested in Elaine quite contrived. It does yeah. seem to have come out of nowhere. Um, yeah. And he never, <laughs> he never looked at her when she was human. Hmm. Um. <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm kind of with you, but for different reasons, apparently. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. Okay, so um, I guess to finish up, um, have we used sort of framing consciously, uh, consciously used framing, because obviously we've both used it just in general, but have we consciously said, actually, I'm really sp specifically going to set this in this location, etc., in order to frame scenes in our own writing? Um, I think it's more of a character thing with me, and I think what I do is I anti-frame, if that makes sense. Mm. So if we look at um, Aunt Mary, Mary Cranford from Unveiled, yeah. you've got this quintessential little Miss Marple-esque old lady yeah, who nevertheless is very modern in her thinking and is sort of avidly grabbing at life because everything is still really interesting despite the fact that she's 82 years old. Yeah. And it's very different to the... The, the general idea of an octogenarian. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, though it's quite interesting, obviously, because she sort of plays onto that, you know, oh, she yeah, plays she into totally it in order to, to, to sort of to mess with other people. So it's kind of like meta-framing. <laughs> and I feel I may have done it a little bit with Amy as well, because the whole thing with the final girl from horror films was generally she was, you know, blonde and sweet and pure and a bit naive, etc., um, or yeah. the one that was hypersexual and ended up getting her comeuppance was blonde and the cheerleader and was, you know, sleeping yeah. around kind of thing. So with Amy, I've got this blonde, little, petite, sweet cheerleader type who is nevertheless, like, fearsomely intellectual and a physicist and, you know, good luck, <laughs> good luck, you know, beating her in a fight, ultimately, not because she's particularly good physically, but because she's got a few things that you're not expecting her to have. Yeah. And obviously, I mean, you're big on using locations. I am. Um, um, now, these obviously pay, play a large part into the plot, but still with certain scenes, you've kind of picked certain locations in order to sort of really enhance kind of what's happening. 
um, which I think has really added a whole other texture and also actually really in- enhanced the sort of the locations themselves. To be honest, um, whenever I put a body of water in, you know that something very dramatic and emotional is going to happen. So it yes. can be like, <laughs> it can be a still lake in Romania and you know you're going to find out something secret. Um, or it can yeah. be a lashing storm stormy sea and it's kind of like okay shit's going down (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely um i mean pathetic fallacy is also just is you know often used in order to frame things um if it's just you know in the background or stuff like that so yeah um i think it's definitely something that i've used as well um in particular i've used it in some of my more recent projects um on a very purposeful level um i can't really kind of go into that at the moment um, but I would say that it's something which um, I'm also now especially even more conscious of and something I'm really going to be thinking about for the future as well. Um, so, yeah, I hope that everyone has kind of understood what this episode is about, um, that they've enjoyed it. Uh, love to hear your thoughts, some of your your favorite sort of framing techniques do you agree or disagree with us with regards to any of what we've discussed please do get in contact remember you can uh reach us through facebook twitter or tumblr both individually or through the dissecting dragons pages now before we go it is time for our dissecting dragons recommendation of the week and this week jules has got one for us Yes, uh, I recently received an audio arc of Belladonna by Adeline Grace, um, which I really, really enjoyed. It's sort of new adult and it's set in a quasi-regency sort of fantasy England mm-hmm. um, where there are very specific morals and manners and, and what have you involved. And it follows the the young woman who is the main character of the story um, who has a very peculiar relationship with death. As in, when she was a baby, her mother was throwing a glittering party and she and all the guests died of poisoning. Right. Death death turns up to collect their souls, um, but the baby is still alive and death realises that there's something very special about the child. Um, After that, as she grows up, the girl has this resentment towards death. She knows he's actually a person Mm. and she really wants to have it out with him and she finds that she can die and then come back so she keeps taking (laughs) belladonna berries so deadly nightshade berries in order to enter a a brief sort of liminal death state where she can talk to death and confront him (laughs) sorry sorry (laughs) so that she can can just beat the shit out of death basically yeah basically and they have a this is it's an absolutely cracking enemies to lovers um story it's really good there's loads of other stuff going on as well i mean she actually has quite an unhappy childhood because she's sort of passed around relatives and a lot of them keep her only because they want access to her money um she finally gets sent to her uncle's place um and her her aunt has died under very mysterious circumstances, apparently of a strange wasting disease. And it looks like her cousin, her female cousin, is going the same way. Mm. And it's quite nice the way she strikes up a friendship with her cousin. And she sets herself the task of finding out what's going on. She thinks someone's poisoning her cousin. Right. So she sets herself the task to find out what's going on. Um, 
aided by the stable lad. And also death is kind of like, well, I think I'll get involved in this murder mystery investigation as well. <laughs> and it, in the meantime, you know, the main character is kind of like, yes, I want to finally have my coming out and meet somebody and, and get married because she's so desperate for family. She's been so desperately lonely throughout her childhood, which is one of the things she's got against death. Yeah, um, It's really, really cool. Apparently it's part of a series. I thought it was a standalone, but it's not. Um, but I'm actually willing to read more because it was cool. <laughs> okay. That's a really, really cool um, wreck. I'm very interested in that. Okay. And on that note, guys, we will say thanks very much for listening. And we'll catch you guys next week. Yeah, thanks and goodbye. Bye. You've been listening to Dissecting Dragons, the speculative fiction podcast. You can follow our podcast at podbean.com or from iTunes. For more information, visit our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash dissectingreaders or check out our author websites at jaironside.com and madelinevaughan.com. Please note that no dragons were harmed during the making of this podcast.